Oath Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Friends and listeners, it's nice to have you back. This is the Thoth Hermes podcast. My name is Rudolf. I am your host. And this is our episode number six in what is already our fourth season. The name of this episode is The Magic of Books. I'm rather sure many of you out there listening to this show are also under the spell of books a lot of the time. My guests today, yes, two of them, are certainly people who know what that means. I will talk to Alkistis Demek and Peter Gray. A little more about that in a minute. So, you have come to the Thoth Hermes podcast for the first time? Okay, that's great. Welcome here. And you? You are already a seasoned listener. Hmm, wonderful. Great to have you back. The best way to find us is, as always, on the website of this podcast, which you find at www.thoughthermes.com. That is T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com. There, you will not only find the podcast itself, but all the other episodes you might have missed so far. You will find show notes for each of the episodes with more information and links. You can leave me voicemail or a written message via our contact form. And you can subscribe to our free newsletter, don't miss all those opportunities. But if you prefer, you will be able to listen on many, many podcast providers. Let me name just the most important ones. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spreaker, Spotify, iHeartRadio. And, of course, an audio-only version is also on our own YouTube channel. So, no excuse not to find us. And if you want to give feedback without going to the website, well, then send me an email on info at thoughtshermes.com or go on our Facebook page or on Twitter. All channels are open. Now, if you really want to have privileged access, there is one way. Become a patron. Go on our website, click on the Patreon link and pledge. Or go on the Patreon website directly and look for our page there. From $2 per episode, limited to a maximum of three charges per month, even if there are more episodes in that month, you are part of it. So $6 a month. That helps us here to pay the charges to make the podcast. And you will be a patron. Looking forward to have you soon. If you prefer a one-off donation to a recurring charge, on the website there is also a plain donation button. Thank you all so much. So guys, 
as I said, today we talk about books, but certainly not books only. A lot of interesting talks we had, Alkistis, Peter and I. But before we go there, you know what comes now, don't you? Yes, some music. Master Wilburn Burchette was first known from his ads hidden in the back of pages of Fate magazine Beyond Reality and Gnostica News. On offer, Burchette's seven-part block-printed psychic meditation course designed to teach people how to listen to music. To go along with his lessons, Burchette sold a series of instrumental guitar and electronic records featuring ornate, hand-drawn cover designs, complete with listening instructions from the master himself. Since just his 12th year, Burchette had been transfixed by the parapsychological, spending as much time reading books on Tibetan mysticism fundamentals as he did practicing guitar the vibrations of which he used to create tonal pictures and patterns. After time spent teaching classical guitar, Master Wilburn Burchette released seven albums in the seven years spanning 1971 through 1977, before abruptly burning and discarding everything related to his musical explorations. I thought it was high time to present this music here on the Thoughts Hermit podcast. And I think this will not remain the only episode where I will play Wilburn's music. Today, we hear three tracks from his 1973 guitar grimoire. And the first piece is called Birth of a Witch.
of a Witch from the album Guitar Grimoire by Wilburn Burchett from 1973. If you want to learn more about this rather exceptional moment in the history of occult music, yes, that's what I would call it, go on our website and find all the links to his music and background information on the episode show notes. So, now let's go to the United Kingdom once again, the first time since they have left the European Union. But well, for our podcast, this does not really change a lot. I had a wonderful talk with two lovely people, whom I'm sure many of you know from their work. Alkistis Dimek and Peter Gray have created one of the most interesting and exciting independent book publishing brands in the field of the occult, Scarlet Imprint. They produce wonderful books by their look and touch and, of course, by their content. And this is exactly one of the subjects that we will touch in our discussion. What makes a book so special? Why is it a kind of magical object? But before that, as usual, I wanted to know where the two of them come from to have become the interesting occultists they are themselves. What brought them together in their venture? And this all kicked off a discussion where very freely we touched a number of interesting subjects like group work, self-instruction, the influence of the internet, you name it. In about 30 minutes, I will come back for a musical break. But now, without further ado, off to that wonderful conversation with Alkistis Dimek and Peter Gray. Here comes the interview. Now I'm very happy today to have two very special people with me here on the Thoughts Herbis podcast. And that's an exciting moment for me because I have the pleasure of welcoming Alkistis Dimek and Peter Gray here with me. Uh, good evening, good afternoon to both of you. Good evening, Rudolf. It's good lovely to, to be speaking with you. Absolutely. Well, the same here. And I'm really excited because a it's rather rare that I have two people at the same time on this show, but that's not the point. The point is that I've really wanted to speak to both of you for quite some time because you are, and I'm not exaggerating these two people who are really marking the serious occult world quite a bit by your books, by your activities as artists. Um, and also of course, by Scarlet Imprint, the publishing house that you're both running together, um, who produces not only amazing books by its contents, but also by just the touch and the look of the books. And I think it's so important to combine the two. Anyway, we're going to come into that in a moment. But um, first of all, welcome here. And as always, as I usually start those interviews, this time I'm going to ask this question twice. Um, you are nowadays, as I said, important and leading figures in that in that world of the occult publishing and and workings. Um, what did make you those two people that you are today in that field, how did it all start? When did it all start? And how would you define yourself? But that's already three questions in a row, but <laughs> let's start with the first one. 
I don't know who the two of you wants to start. Normally it's ladies first, but you decide who wants to go first. This time. I felt that. <laughs> um, in, in, terms of, in terms of the occult, I'm fairly radically self-made. So mm-hmm. my, my process in the occult began very much pre-internet. So I began, um, I began as a, as a, a sort of confused existentialist, um, and I gravitated more and more towards, um, strange secondhand bookshops. And, uh, I found, um, I found, a. uh, a depth of knowledge, um, uh, an interest there that, that I kept pursuing through experiments that kind of burgeoned through, through, um, through, through study and practice. So I, I began really my, my occult interests, uh, university, um, and I began experimenting as everyone does with, um, tarot and, um, meditation, um, and psychedelics and, um, literature and sex and ordeal practices. And I was very fortunate in that I'm a, I'm a particularly driven individual. So I, I, I self-start pretty quickly and I, I, I dedicate myself to work. So, so even without without the presence of teachers, I was able to um, I was able to commit to to a magical path. And I think I think it's very important to have have that example for other people that this is something that can be pursued either with others or by oneself if if you're disciplined enough. And and one of the one of the the first modalities of magic that I encountered was um, was Alistair Crowley's work and Thelema. So I was strongly influenced by by. Um, by Alistair as a, as a young and budding magician. Um, and I pursued, um, I pursued the work of, of the, the thalamic work through magic and theory and practice and, um, the majority of Crowley's works and going through the various syllabuses, um, experimenting both with myself and then finding people, um, and working with some small groups of fellow independent magicians, um, that really, that really blossomed when I was uh, living in Brighton. Brighton's a very, um, a very radical kind of town. If if you're American, then it, you compare it to somewhere I don't know, like Portland or, or Austin. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's a it's a, a queer, transgressive, um, um, liminal space with a with a history of magical workers. So the the Temple of Psychic Youth were kind of like packing up bags when I was there. Um, but there was also quite an underground music scene, um, the, the piercing scene, the, you know, the queer scene was there. So, so, uh, I had a lot of education in that and I, I found a lot of magical, um, magical benefit being there and also being in the landscape because Brighton's kind of cradled by, um, it's cradled by the, by the South Downs. So there's this expanse of, um, of, of chalk, um, of chalk hills and um sacred spots including um uh, probably most famously Chanctonbury Hill which is where um where Victor Neuberg um lived at the base of that and um his magical group uh, used to used to work up there and he used to work up there and so I worked I worked the landscape there um and then I continued my studies I had a I had the the very briefest of stints in the OTO um who I won't say bad things about, but it wasn't my cup of tea. Um, and 
I continue to educate myself, to meet people, to have experiences, to keep my diary entries, um, to compare my notes with with my other fellow magicians. And um, and then that kind of begins to lead into Scarlet Imprint where, where I'd sit around and I'd look at my bookshelf and I'd look at my book collections um, and I had friends who worked in the cult bookshops and we'd sit and we'd discuss and we'd, you know, talk long into the night and we'd look at our books and we'd say, what's missing? Mm-hmm. Where are the books that we're looking for here? What What isn't being represented? And one of the things that, that Scholar Imprint was able to do and was able to, to bring these books kind of out of the ether, these texts that we kind of dreamt of in terms of particularly representing the work of living practitioners. Because when when I was when I was working like this, there was very much a sense that the tide had gone out on the magical community, that people were isolated. Um, the internet was in a in a kind of fairly early stages. Um, and there was a sense that I knew people who were doing interesting magical work, but their work wasn't being published and their their ideas weren't being talked about. Um, Even things which we take for granted as being um, prevalent at the moment, like, for example, the focus on grimoire magic. There was no focus on grimoire magic. There was was Crowley's Crowley's, um, terrible ripped-off version of the Goetia, um, and and there were the the AE weight compilations and very little else. So there was a there was a real a real dearth of material there. Um, of course, Roy Ansel of uh, Fulger had been publishing spare material, but like spare had never been something that I was particularly interested in. Right. Um, there was um, Andrew Chumley had just put out like his paperbacks. This was even before um, before a text like Kazuisha was in a hardback edition. I mean, th- those were those were appearing on on the bookshelves um, mm-hmm. libraries, and there was something beginning to stir, some kind of like post post Grantian, post the collapse of the orders, post the death of um, the popularity of the OTO, post. Um, the, the collapse um, and dissipation of, of uh, Temple of Psychic Youth. And there was, a, there was a real moment when there was the possibility for something new to come through. Are we talking 90s here? Talking, yeah, we're talking late 90s, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was very the, – these were kind of the influences that were coming into, into, into my magic and into my sense of magical publishing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've always been – I've always been obsessed with books. I mean, we we just we have thousands of books um, <laughs> uh, across all subjects, and and what what I count as a magical book is quite quite broad. Um, and I think sometimes that gets lost in the modern occult scene when people are people are collecting books and looking for things to be explicitly magical. Some of the most magical books, you know, aren't even about magic. You know, some of the some of the productions, some of the texts have magical. something. Yeah, books are magical in their own right. Potentially very magical, but as, as such, as an object, and yeah, 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 yeah. So, so really, my 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 path, luckily, because I I've been non-aligned, because I've um, I've had I've had good friends across a whole range of magical traditions. It also places me in, in a in a in a fairly neutral place, which enables me to talk to people in different groups and in different traditions and to produce texts through Scarlet Imprint without saying I am pushing a particular order or I am pushing a particular personality. I'm not saying, Mm. I'm not saying come and join my cult. 
Right. I'm saying, I'm saying, you know, we're saying here's the information. This is something that you can work with and that work is what will transform you. Right. Just going back on what you said at the very beginning, and I'm coming to Alkistis in one minute. Um, Did I get you right that you started that interest in a practical way at age about 18-ish, 20-ish? Yeah, 18 to 20. Because I... makes me really gives me relief because so many people I talk to and or interview here and I believe them when they say well I had my first encounter at age five when I did that and that and it makes me sometimes feel hmm did I miss something about myself and your path seems quite different yeah absolutely not yeah Hmm. I mean I I I grew up in a in a fairly secular environment but I went to a, I went to a, a church school, like a, sta- a standard Church of England school. So I had a I had an early rejection of Christianity at the age of, you know, whatever. Um, and I embraced a kind of like like a, a nascent a nascent paganism in a t- in, in 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 terms of me being responding to the the you know the the ancient Greek gods or the or the right. or the, or the the things that were happening in the landscape, and I had various odd encounters with with animals and uh, and spirits in the landscape. But that wasn't a formal practice. I mean, I think it's mm-hmm. quite common for children to be in this state of being between worlds, and then to let them narrativize these experiences and turn them into something. Um, which perhaps isn't what happened at the time, but helps story them and understand themselves as magical people. And I think that's a valuable thing, but I don't think it's always necessarily um, a an objective truth. Right, right, true, very true, very true. I'd love to come a bit, a bit later back, a little bit later back to self-instruction and group work or not, etc. Because those are all interesting and important questions, I think. But let's first now go to you, Elkistis, and uh, tell us about your background and how it started for you and and what brought you to that place here today where you are now. <laughs> um Quite different, actually. If Peter started late, I I came to the Western esotericism uh, much later, Mm, very uh, not long before I met Peter, actually. So I was in Mm -hmm. my early 30s. Previously, I was sort of adjacent to that. So I was interested in in magic, in uh, the esoteric, but particularly from uh, an Eastern perspective, I'd uh, encountered the writings of Arto, Antonin Arto, when I was 15, and through Arto, um, Alfred Jerry. And those had a huge impact on me and, and continue to do so on my ideas about um, art, theater, um, books, and magic. And but that led me to actually go to, um, eventually I went to SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies, and I, I uh, studied art and music of Asia and Africa. And I was very interested in the sacred dances and theater forms of these places. So my interest was was there and looking at the sort of the like, um, esoteric ideas about the body that uh, come to the West through, um, I think it's in the 19th century that they really... Um, arrive in the West with a great impact through, I guess, the philosophical, the theosophical society. Mm-hmm. So, but these, this kind of, these traditions, I was very interested in researching those when I was uh, in my twenties and, and onwards. 
Um, I didn't know magicians existed. I didn't know there was a Western, <laughs> Western magic. And um, I met Peter in a quite strange circumstances. I was taking ayahuasca regularly with um, the, a group of daimi drinkers. And mm-hmm. I had done a, a long working in Cornwall, um, a 10 day working and um, a couple of weeks after returning from that very, very intense experience, I had a vision while I was cat sitting for a friend in a garden in East London. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was meditating, sitting there in it's August um, in the light and the sun and deep in meditation. And uh, it was a sort of an embodied meditation. I'd been working with, uh, for a couple of years, I'd been working with a, a Tibetan Dakini, Kuru, uh, Kurukula, mm-hmm. um, working with her, like a very freestyle form. I wasn't initiated, I haven't been initiated in, in any of these tantric traditions, but I did a kind of deity yoga with her. And so I had developed ways of um, meditation where I would go into my body and explore within it. And I'd opened a doorway and there was a woman standing there. And this I really wasn't expecting. And she just fixed me with her gaze, but she kept like her face and her body kept changing. And she told me many things and I just uh, like nothing quite like that had happened before. I'd had very visual experiences within my body and over of, of a sort of an embodied um, visual mm, ecstasy, but this was something else, like very specific. And I, I wrote it all down and didn't really dwell too much on it. I was just a bit kind of overwhelmed and didn't know where to place it because the things she was saying to me didn't make any sense at all. Then a series of coincidences led me to uh, meet a, a, a mutual friend. So I, uh, someone I knew knew Peter and he put me in touch with Peter. He said, oh, you might like, you might like each other. <laughs> You're both <laughs> crazy. <laughs> so um, later that year, I think we, we met on the, the winter solstice mm. that year, 2005. And it just kind of, it just went boom. The energy was crazy. <laughs> there was a, an instant, uh, I don't know. It was electric. It was like being struck by lightning. Um, And that was my introduction to Western esotericism, really. Peter had written The Red Goddess, but um, he gave it to me in in, um, chapters to read. I didn't like, so that was my introduction to Western magic. And he would give me some instructions as well about like how to um, meditate and to begin a relationship with Babylon, which is what I did in the end of 2005 um that that's my appearance in <laughs> right um, a, a year later we we um started scarlet imprint and we launched we launched it on 2007 with yeah. when we published the red goddess so mm-hmm. it came into being in order to bring this book into the world and um, yeah, so my, my, I don't have like a long background in Western magic or esotericism. It kind of started right there. And I had a, I have quite a long background in uh, body practices. I had been studying Qigong, Shiatsu, yoga, and um, a lot of this, uh, Bhutto, obviously, dance, and a lot of the adjacent ideas within uh, Eastern esotericism to do with these. But the West just like opened up for me quite recently. 
Right. Um, but um, I mean, thank you for sharing that also that very personal experience. That's, uh, that's very interesting and, and, and exciting. Um, so would you, would you say, I mean, going back a bit, a bit earlier anyway, before your encounter with the Western tradition, would you say that your encounters with Eastern tradition and also your body work, have you trained as a classical dancer as well or, 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 or not? No, uh, okay. I trained just as a Bhutto dancer. Um, right. My, my mother was um, training as a ballet dancer and I had right. away from that and um, mm -hmm. had a lot of uh, issues with my body. And it was only when I um, saw a performance of Bhutto and read the writings of Hichikata Tatsumi, who is mm -hmm. the founder mm -hmm. of Bhutto. And it, um, it really uh, resonated with me very deeply. And I felt that here was a, a physical practice that, I was able to explore in many ways. It wasn't rigid in the way, say, um, yoga is, or the, the way that yoga is practiced these days, that there are certain postures and there's a particular way to do them and breathing pattern and so on. I needed yeah. something where I could be more explorative and um, go into my body and um, heal it and discover what, what its secrets were. So I was fascinated by this, but I, I recognized all the time that I was drawn to the Eastern dance or African dance, that that's not my tradition. This isn't like, I, uh, this is not the culture I was brought up in. I was uh, brought up quite separate to um, that, that world. Uh, so yeah, I was raised as a Catholic. So had a very, um, quite an abrupt encounter with Catholicism when I was five, because I was living in Portugal and kind of completely free, like a wolf child. Then when I came to England and was sent to school and to church, it was just like, <laughs> uh, deeply traumatic. <laughs> so, I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. And it gave me a very, um, uh, very, awkward relationship with my body and with my, uh, even my sexuality at five, I experienced yeah. um, like the, the sexual experiences I had very young, which was spontaneous and accidental were, you know, immediately repressed because I had no space in which to think of them other than with kind of shame or fear. They were bad. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So mm. I was interested in finding a physical practice that would enable me to, uh, work out the mysteries of the body through my body rather than through a, a particular cultural structure that was mm -hmm. relevant to other people, but which is not um, mine. Right. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, please. But as I feel it somehow in what you say and what Peter said before, um, you approached the same thing from two different ends, but in a very similar way. Mm. I mean, both of you did not follow any yeah. classical path to <laughs> arrive at your encounter and then from there on walk together. But um, yeah. maybe you were more inspired by the Eastern traditions at that point and Peter more by the Western traditions, but, but somehow they, mm. I don't know, would you, would you, would you see it like that? And is it then a, do they, mix do they mingle do they, <laughs> what do they do when they come together in your case i mean it's very personal but uh, um, i think that the eastern traditions very much inform my approach to the way i work but in a way that i can refer back to them so i'm also very interested in looking at 
like the current thinking and research on the body. And a lot of that does tie in with like older models. So if you look at sort of the esoteric anatomy of um, like a Chinese uh, esotericism or Tibetan or Indian, there are lots and lots of correspondences and they don't map exactly. So these are all kind of particular maps of the body and of its um, occult aspects. But mm -hmm. There are resonances and there are like uh, parallels. There are uh, other ways of describing things, which uh, some, some of the sort of uh, more up-to-date aspects of scientific thinking are approaching. Mm -hmm. So I'm able to, to think about this, but I, I work very much with the figure of Babylon as a, a way to understand that in the West, there's an entire history of, of the body that is both male and female bodies of, of women, particularly because uh, living under patriarchy, a lot of female experience has been occulted. And the figure of Babylon is a way to sort of uh, excavate this hidden of the West, this um, and what, what the Academy is now calling rejected religion or re rejected knowledge. And I find that a lot of things that were considered like uh, beyond the pale, this is evil, this is not good. Not all of that is evil. Some of that is things that we were just not meant to look at. And so through, through my work with Babylon, with the harlot of revelation, this revelatory goddess, it's, um, it's a way to access this material. And a lot of these um, more feminine knowledges still exist in the East, even within patriarchal cultures, because there's a certain field within uh, religious spheres which still maintains certain teachings regarding this, um, regarding the way uh, energy works within the body, for instance. And even though there are male biases in those traditions, there are like these sort of glimmers that there's... Um, I actually think like a lot, there's a lot of work to do with understanding male bodies as well. I think we're at a very interesting point. It's not just uh, the female body that I think has been not thought about right. I think all bodies need to be rethought and everybody's relationship with uh, the embodied aspects of their practice, magical, is really kind of, I think it's it's the moment now to really go into this. Um, many practitioners sort of turning turning towards uh, this mm -hmm. consideration of the centrality of the body to everything we know and do. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, th I think this is something very crucial there because, um, I mean, I have a little little bit of parallel story about myself when I, I grew up in a very Catholic surrounding as a, as a boy, right? And I can completely relate to those problems that you were mentioning um, about the body and especially about being ashamed to even think about such things yeah. and stuff like that. Um, and absolutely. And I think magic has a role to play. Magical work has a role to play. Just like Peter said before, the landscape is one thing, the body is another thing, but they relate also in a, yeah. in a, very, in a very special way. Wouldn't you say so? Uh, absolutely. Do you want to talk about that? Or? You can talk about it. Yeah, the way I the way I experience it, there's no separation. There's just a continuum between the body and the environment that it's in. And 
where you are is really the most important thing because the 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 spirits that you have relationships with are the spirits which are in your environment which belong in the space which you're in and it's like an ecology in itself so in a, a, one body is an ecology of many you know, mm -hmm. creatures, living organisms, but also the body is not limited to just uh, one person. So in many ways, like Scarlet Imprint is an organism that exists out of me and Peter, sort of a magical hermaphrodite or something. And beyond that, you know, we're in communion and communication with the plants or the statues and the, 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 the books in the room. <laughs> and outside that, there's the, the birds and the creatures outside and the spirits. And so all of this is completely integrated. They're not separate things. They can't be really thought of separately. Right. Do you work out from an office where you lock the door in the evening and go home, so to speak, or this colored imprint part of your 24 hour life it's 24 hours a day seven right. days a week three Fully right yeah, yeah. i would have guessed so but uh, in, in relation to what you just said it was interesting to to, to point right. it out i think right yeah, yeah. yeah no it's fierce path it's that the, there's no time for us to do anything else other than <laughs> other than the work that's i'm sure that's yeah for, so that's that's what we're going to do yeah absolutely you just said something very interesting this is about the body and the environment and when of course when a person of the 21st century hears environment, we immediately think of what's going on in the world and all the problems that suddenly everybody speaks about in a very superficial way. We agree on that, but I mean, the problems do exist. We, I think we agree on that too. Um, do you, do you think that the, that let's call it sacred activism for a moment, just to define it. Do you think that the work you do or the work you talk about and the work you do is related to that because the environment and the body is linked or is that something for you that is completely different and not your cup of tea so to speak i think it's something uh, our work certainly inspires that um to, to to quite a strong degree so so i've had a lot of correspondence from people particularly around apocalyptic witchcraft um people within the activist community who've who've read that or, or have read rewilding witchcraft in in brazen vessel or online mm -hmm. and, and i think it's extremely positive that it's um that it's it's helping it's helping people to to language their their They're often unspoken experiences which have drawn them into the battleground of environmental politics. Because if you're if you're an environmentalist, it's not it's it's a series of defeats. I mean, you if you're an environmentalist, you're you're dying every fucking day because the news that you get is there are there are temporary there are temporary truces and there are absolute losses. So if if the work can help people to cope with the the trauma of living in the Anthropocene, if the work can inspire people to take particularly direct action um, against against people who are culpable for the actions that are destroying the planet, then I'm I'm absolutely in favor of that. Like one one thousand percent. And and I've had some very I've had some very good conversations with some quite quite leading um, environmentalists who I won't name who've who've read and responded to to my work in this way. Mm -hmm. um, it's 
At the same time, I think I think it's problematic for people to equate their activism with witchcraft in a in a broad sense without perhaps understanding that that, that these may be two different things. So yeah. so what I don't want to do is to put down anyone who is inspired by the work to go on or to continue with their activist path. But but I, we're, we're magicians. We, we do witchcraft. I mean, we're, this is what we do. Um, and, and that's, that's somewhat different to, um, to the, the acts of political theater. Absolutely. No, I I was not talking about uh, those witches gathering for uh, uh, hexing a certain politician we don't even name here. <laughs> but but um, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm really talking on a hopefully higher level than that. And, and But I get you. And I think you just said something very interesting to me. Um, we do magic, right? <laughs> those three words. So that's a kind of an absolute thing that you do that's like when you say as a musician i do music i don't i don't do um i don't paint with my music uh, a landscape i do the music absolute music as it is called in the in the in the case of classical music so would you say that what you would boast of you are doing practicing is absolute magic in that sense mm -hmm. not depicting but absolute magic and can that exist I think you have to recognize your place in the ecology, in the, the whole ecology of spirits and, and life, animate life, living beings. And I think it was Josephine McCarthy when you were talking to Josephine recently and she right. said, like, you know, we don't even know something like this. And, I, and there were so many points I agreed with her on. and. There is this sense that, yes, we are, we are compelled to do something and we, by doing something a lot, you become good at it or competent at it. And you find that this is what it is that your, your inner compels you to do. It's not some, it's not some relationship with being seen to do something, but there is a, a thing within that just drives you to have to express something particular or to do something in a certain way. And I think magic is like that for us, that you don't know in what way it will have effects in the greater world, but you try to have certain effects in your own life. And for those people in your environment around you that you are, want to positively influence or whatever. Mm -hmm. So you, you, you try and have as much influence in your own ambit, but you don't think that you're some kind of God and therefore able right. to affect the course of history, but you do what you can in your own um, space. Yeah. Yeah. No. That. yeah. No, definitely. I understand what you mean. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great to talk to those two wonderful and interesting people. And we will carry on with this in just a few moments. But before that, we will now hear again a piece played on the guitar and electronics by Wilburn Burchette. Guitar Grimoire, he called his 1973 album. The ancients believed that Everything that existed had a voice, and that all creatures were eternally singing the praises of the Creator, 
but contemporary man, because his soul is enmeshed in the illusion of material existence, can no longer hear these divine melodies. That is one of the interesting statements made by Master Wilburn. Let's now hear a track from that album Guitar Grimoire, Invocation to the Horned One.
Invocation to the Horned One from Wilburn Burchett's album Guitar Grimoire from 1973. A really interesting period for the world of the occult as well. Now we return to 2020 and the wonderful world of Alkistis Dimek and Peter Gray. We continue our talk about the books they produce at Scarlet Imprint, their wonderful publishing company, about Eastern and Western magic and work, about the relation of Alkistis' work as a dancer, about typography and translations, among others. As you probably now already know, after the interview, they will immediately follow our third piece of music for today, after which I will return with my announcement of the next episode. Wilburn Burchette will return after the interview with the piece called Fire Spell, another track from his guitar grimoire. But now, Alkistis and Peter, welcome back. Well, that might be a good link to a question I was writing down and didn't want to miss about something that you said in your first in your first statement, Peter. Uh, we were talking; you were talking about self-instruction, and you were talking about group work that you did from time to time. Not talking about you too, but afterwards, I think you mentioned you you also met with other musicians. So, what role does group work play for you and what do you think it should play in general for people who are active in the field is that individual or i mean <laughs> it's not a funny thing to say is group work individual but is it individually different that you need it or not that's what i mean and you are one of the rare people that i know who have achieved what they have achieved by self-instruction at least a rare people of those who would admit it that they did it mm. <laughs> um so can you maybe expand a bit on those two questions who are which are i believe a bit linked as well yeah um i think some people are are temperamentally drawn to group work mm. um and i think i think i think magicians magicians very often um very often are um quite particular individuals so one of the things that that i I think happens is that people begin to practice by themselves. They start to have experiences that they um, realize that magic works. Then they look to see if they can replicate those experiences with other people and learn from other people. And then once the magic actually starts to work and they realize what it is that they're here to do, then very often the work becomes very personal and individual again. And my Groups can be groups can be really useful um, if you're looking for support. There are people who need more support than others. Mm -hmm. um, I don't I don't need a lot of support. It's not that I don't work well with others. It's simply that I know what I'm here to do. So so for me, group work is um, group group work now is a, is is very very little interest to me. Also because like I'm working with Alcestis, so I'm in a position where where we're like the smallest functioning magical group as a dyad. Um, so that's 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 where I've ended up. The thing with groups is that um, there are there are benefits and there are there are pitfalls. Um, and 
there are many people who present themselves as authorities who run groups who um, who perhaps shouldn't be doing so because of the reasons they're doing it. And and anyone who's listening and is thinking of joining or working with a magical group, you know, please be aware that that people have the same motivations, which tend to be the the big three, which are, are power, money, and sex. And they're generally looking to leverage um, one or a combination of those out of you. And if you find a group that's trying to do that, they're trying to exert power over you, they're trying to take money from you, or they're trying to fuck you, then it's probably not the best place to be. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, we're also in a really remarkable position now in terms of um, I'm, I'm quite famous for for um, for being anti-technology. Um, I'm not. I'm not a big fan of technology. However, um, I have a nuanced critique of it, having worked in um, digital media um, extensively, television, websites, the the full belly of the beast. So I have a I have a quite developed critique of it. But at the moment, there's a possibility for people online to form usable communities and to gain far greater information than they ever have before. Um, so Josephine's course with Korea is like a good example and um, what gordon white does with rune soup is another good example yep. other people find jason miller's courses you know of, of great use to them so there are a lot of amazing resources out there which mean that you don't have to you know go to a local moot and meet some some creepy <laughs> creepy pedophile and uh, go around to their house and and, and you know Try and get and, yeah, and to happen to live in your area and you don't know why. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so we're in a really good position now in terms of the, the group mm-hmm. becomes much more disparate. So if you look at um, sort of Deleuze and Guattari and the idea, the idea of the rhizome, the fact is that we, we're now in a position where we have a, a much broader network of individuals that we can plug into. So if you use the digital tools with discretion, it's possible – to um, form form relationships and gain information from people who have skills in particular areas. Um, mm-hmm. The magicians today should be exceeding the magicians of not only 100 years ago, but of 10 years ago mm-hmm. in terms of their ability to attain, mm-hmm. in terms of their ability to actually get the results they're looking for, whether that's pursuing... Um, whether that's pursuing body work, whether that's pursuing breath work, whether that's pursuing martial arts practice, whether that's getting access to the, the cortex of Western magic, whether that's actually having an understanding of what a tradition is without having to deal with a whole load of grandmother story bullshit from people. You can it's actually, you can fact check, you can share. Results yeah. and workings and things now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can have the, yeah can have in-time discussions almost and and yeah yeah no i i fully agree on that and it's interesting you're you're so clear about this because yeah yeah i mean even i'm not talking about this podcast even i'm talking about just i don't like facebook personally i really don't like it but it has helped me since maybe the last four years now to to find people who have the same interest in in this country here i'm i feel sometimes very isolated because you even if you want it, it would be very hard to meet the right people because hmm, yep. there's so little there's so little interest in that. But Facebook has helped me to create absolutely fr- friendships. But I mean friendships, I'm not yep. not friends on Facebook, right? And yep. yeah, absolutely. 
is to use these tools with discernment and not get into the sort of the emotional stuff that goes with it, like the sort of the emotional manipulation that the medium is designed to stimulate. So, Right, right. The problem is that those media are not objects. I'm bringing us slowly yeah. back to the books. They're not objects and they're not people. So the, the, right. the, the critical things that, that really make a difference are, are real human relationships. That's mm. being in a room in space with people because mm. you can learn a lot very, very quickly um, about people if you actually, if you actually spend Spend a little bit of time with them in the flesh. See who they are. See whether they are more than their curated Instagram feed. See whether they they're actually they actually are what they they say they you are. You really find out who people are when you just talk to them and spend time with them, and that's like that's the real person, and it's that simple. And there's a lot of um, posturing online, or uh, yeah, it just that uh, makes it very hard to find who someone really is, and. And then, and then physical books. I mean, the analog object, the ability mm. to, the ability to, to, to disconnect from all of your digital media and to sink into a book mm. and to lose yourself in that and to find something which isn't working on digital time, which yeah. allows you to access your deep unconscious, which allows you to access your dream state and which allows you to actually learn in a deep way. I think the book is still, the one of the unrivaled tools for people um, to to do this work upon themselves, and it's not something that people have always had access to. It's not like in the yeah the, the, the Middle Ages there were manuscripts in monasteries. There weren't like not everyone had books or could read. Yeah, and, and, and portable books is another thing. Is like a something you can actually like carry with you rather than has to remain. In a, in a reading desk. So. Absolutely. But I want to carry that even further. I mean, when we do elemental work, we learn somehow in the very basic ceremonial magic things that if you work with the four elements, at some point you have the fifth element that, that is created and then you go on to planetary magic, etc. And when you have a book, you also speak to all your senses. You uh -huh. touch it, you see it, you smell it. You know, it's, it's, it relates to all your five senses somehow. Well, maybe not tasting it, but you could even do that. <laughs> <laughs> and that creates, at least to me, that's the way I see it. It, it creates something else, um, which is then the, the, the magic of the book. And, uh, but now I'm coming to Scarlet Imprint, of course, um, and it's now 12, 12, a bit over 12 years that it has existed, right? Um, so the, what amazes me is the quality of the books as such, as objects, as we said. It's not that you're just doing good books with a nice content, which is already something <laughs> uh, many others don't achieve, but um, it's the object. So what? how do you see that? Why? Maybe this is a silly question, but may, why is it so important to you? And how, why do you also invest, I, I'm sure, invest so, so much money and, and time and effort mm. into that? What does it mean to you, the, the quality of, of the overall object? I think the material embodiment of these texts is so important for the reasons you just elaborated to do with the senses. I think 
I think a book is a very, very sensual object, or if it isn't, why isn't it? You know, something, something, something of the soul of the book has been lost because the soul, as Aristotle says, is something that can be touched, is felt, that feels. So the book gives you this encounter with a very deep aspect of your being, which is that like the sensual, the, 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 the sensual substrate of our consciousness. So I think that the encounter with the page and the book, the whole, the object itself, its weight, um, the, the way it appears, the way it feels, the way it smells is one of the ways that we get past a lot of the sort of the critical rational mind. And it, sinks in deeper to us and talks to us on a, uh, on one level, a more animalic level, and on another way, a more angelic level. There's something higher to this knowledge as well. And um, well, I was reading recently a book from Hyphen Press about typography, because I'm obsessed with these things, book mm-hmm. design and typography. And um, in an essay by Robin Kinross, he was talking about this, um, the material embodiment aspect of books and how the the rise of the designer kind of came about um i guess first of all with um william morris and the Comscott press because there was a the sort of the, the story is that there is a, a sort of fall in the standards of publishing and the appearance of the book because of the processes, the industrialization of it. And so materials become less high quality or less available and everything becomes more generic. And it's sort of the first stage of what's been happening more recently with ultimately print on demand and very, very poor quality materials. And so the designer is actually like a magician figure in this mm. sense, because the designer controls and chooses all the different materials and brings them together. And so the, the consciousness of the designer is like the, the consciousness of a magician who gathers all of these materia and turns them into something and, and transforms the, the raw text that you have, say, from the, the word document that an author has given you. And between there's something that happens, some alchemy that happens between like reading the text and immersing yourself in the author's work and vision. And then this, I don't know, bubbles up somewhere (laughs) in the deep consciousness and brings like, you start to see it. So you start to see the book, you start to feel the book and sense how it should be, how it needs to like materialize into the world. So it's a very, very magical process. And I think I mean, a lot of the magic I practice is simply the, the, the creating, the designing and the typesetting of books, because this bringing that vision into the world is making something tangible that existed like initially in the mind of an author. And I don't know how many years of practice and work and research that goes into it. And there's something very gratifying about being able to embody that in a material object that actually does justice to that vision, that actually communicates it on many more levels. And I think that, well, Scarlet Imprint has always tried to do this with books and you have all the same like uh, issues that you have with magic. You have, you know, uncontrollable external forces that you have to negotiate, like, you know, astral weather or printers. Printers are like, you know, unruly spirits or cats, you, <laughs> you have to keep a firm control of them. <laughs> and then you have like the higher level of spirits, which are, you know, much more hard to work with, but also they know what they're doing. And this will be like the fine binders who, yeah. who really know what, 
Did you have to deal with translators? Ah, translators. Not so much, no. Because, uh, uh, I don't know. I, uh, this is a personal experience. One of the very first books, which was not at all the reason, the book was uh, was not a beautiful book. It was just a, a paperback, but uh, which where I really, I was about 18 or so, I really felt um, something else was happening in me when I was reading it was Schwaller de Lubitz um, Herbach. I don't know if you know that. Um, about the, this little Egyptian boy who it's an initiatic story, basically. Really, it, it touched something in me. And I read it in French. Yes. And, and many, many years later, I got the copy in English in my hands. And both are not my mother tongue. So that was not the reason why mother tongue is German. So I speak French and English about at the same level. So I don't think that was reason. I took that book in English and I started reading it and it didn't do anything to me. Yeah. So I thought, yeah. hey, that's strange. I put it away and a few days later I got my French copy back and and read again because I said, what happened? Maybe it's I have changed in the last 10 years or so. No, it was the language. Yeah. I'm not saying this about English in general. It was just maybe that translation or it, I don't know. But language is also yeah, a magical object, isn't it? Yeah, translation is a very interesting phenomenon because something is both itself and it becomes something else in the process. So it's it's um, something very interesting is going on in the process of translation. And what's created with a translation is both some kind of, it's a descendant of the thing it is. Mm. It's related to it very, very, very directly, but it's also something other. And there's uh, so much dependent on the skill of the translator. So there are some books I have like different translations of, and it's kind of interesting when you're reading them. Um, there's a, a wonderful novel called The Blind Owl by Sadek Hedayat, a Persian writer. And I have a couple of translations of it, and they're quite different. And they give you such a different feeling. And I don't read Persian, so I can't get at the original. So right. I try to read both and then uh, get this sort of stereo effect and see if I can see through that mm -hmm. into some like a... Well, the word says it all, translate, right? Um, it, 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 yeah. it changes kind of the, the, the the path yeah. where it goes, right? Yeah. Uh, we are drifting off and we need three more <laughs> podcast episodes to get it all together. I uh, uh, Let's say a, a few more minutes with, with Scarlet Imprint. So um, what are your plans there? Is it just going steadily like that or do you have any specific plans that are, that are being prepared we should already know of or... Well, it's our standard plan for world domination, which is... Um, oh, okay, yeah, sure. Work, <laughs> ...work ceaselessly and bring out a maximum of four super niche books a year. Right. So um, we, we've got some really exciting um, titles this year we're really happy with. So, mm -hmm. um, so um, excellent book is the next title, which um, we opened pre-order in December and we had some delays, but that's coming back from the printer on... End of February. Yeah, end of February. And that's a, that's a phenomenally exciting manuscript. Um, uh, Dr. Al Cummins and, uh, Phil, and Phil Lagarde um, mm -hmm. brought together this text. There's, um, there's another excellent podcast with Al um, on Rune Soup this week right. talking about the book. So, so I'd rather let Al talk about the book than, than give my 
Yeah. Yeah. We're bringing out, following that, we're working currently working on Frater Acher's um, book on Trisimius. Right, we've already booked a date for, for his ah, podcast okay. about that book because yeah. I'm happy to say I'm the only podcast he was on so far ever. So, and he... <laughs> He said, okay, I'll come back with that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't want to, to, to spoil the revelation that he will bring with No, no, you, you can't. You it's, can't. A very, it's a very, um, I think it's a very necessary work, very interesting and necessary, mm -hmm. because it deals with a period of magical history, which is not very well known. And yeah, so it's some manuscripts that are related to Trisemius and also a, a sort of a short biography and comment and analysis by Frater Aker, so mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a good one. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, the book really is part of one of the one of the major works that's been going on for this generation of magicians, which is the re-establishment of context. Mm -hmm. So we've been looking at we've been we've been we're in a position now where we can tell our history in a in a much more. Um, in a much more measured and magical fashion than has ever been done in the past. So there are enough scholar practitioners who have access to the original manuscripts that they can they can actually bring things out and they can actually tell us a history of Western magic that has been occluded for so long. So so both excellent book and the the work on Trithemius do a do a, a sterling service in in telling us where we've come from and and what our magic what is, what our what our lineage actually is without mm -hmm. Without resorting to to some of the some of the tall tales, yeah. so <laughs> so yeah. that's great. Then we're working with um, with Autumn with, Richardson of Corblestone Press on a book of her poetry. So that's right. a really nice, um, mm -hmm. a nice. Uh, that's going to be exciting too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's very magical, and her work is is stunning. So, yeah, we like to put out poetry books as well as, alongside the sort of the more like clearly magical work because I think it's absolutely like the sort of the, one of the core practices and techniques of magic is written word and, and especially the poetic and without poets keeping our language like vital in this way I think I think it does a lot of good to to spend time with poetry yeah, yeah. agree yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and then Nikolai Wood. and then and then the, the oh we've got so many books this year and then uh, Nikolai uh, Dematos Frisval's uh, book on the trolldom so right yeah and yeah. that's been quite a long time coming but there was a lot of work that needed to be done on it in terms of like redrawing seals and and all those things so yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so and, and you're choosing typography I got it I'll kiss this yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> it's time to come into being <laughs> I wish they didn't take so long but they, right, they, they, right. They <laughs> well, that yeah. that sounds all very interesting, and of course, Thought Hermes will keep an eye on all that, and and oh. uh, and that will be great. I want to go back to if 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 it's okay for you, because um, um, you mentioned, of course, of course, the figure of Babylon in, mm. much earlier in this interview, uh, yeah. and. Somehow, I, I was going to ask you, because we have to talk about the Red Goddess, of course, we have to talk about the Brazen Vessel. And, uh, well, we have talked on this podcast about the Brazen Vessel. Ursula did a, oh, yeah. an, a, an excellent job with that. And she she was excited about that book. But um, Figure of Babylon, you chose both, in a way, some a figure that is, as you said yourself, Alkistis, put into a corner by regular regular points of view let's put it that way and you 
if I understand you well, at least to my, to what I see through your work and through what you say, you are pulling her out of that corner. You, you put her in the center of something and, um, I, can you both or individually, or I don't know what, how, um, define that center. What, what is Babylon for you? What, what, Can you tell us more about her? Let's put it that way. Okay. Um, in your uh, in your in your point of view, of course. Yeah. My, my point of view. <laughs> Thinking about this, where do I start? Um, well, I'm quite unorthodox because I've taken a very um, unthelemic or post-thelemic uh, perspective on Babylon. So Certainly I, you do, yes. Dropped, yeah. Uh, I dropped a lot of the sort of ideological trappings that go with her as um, a, a goddess or an archetype within Thelema. Um, my interest was more to go back to the sources, Crowley's um, sources, mm -hmm. and that's principally the harlot of revelation that John wrote about. And so we spend a lot of time working with this and building a practice out of these kind of researches. So the bringing back the importance of idolatry, um, because obviously the heart of revelation is an idol, um, as Peter spoke about in a recent talk, which is um, on YouTube. There's, and this idolatry is cognate with harlotry. So a lot of the understandings that Crowley interpreted with his figure of Babylon or the Scarlet Woman, which is another kind of ideological construct of Thelema, mm -hmm. I've, I try to, to look past that because it belongs very much to Crowley's age. And I haven't seen any um, use for me personally in defining myself in those ways as I didn't work through Thelema. And my encounter, as I said at the beginning, was with this figure who just appeared and um, told me I would meet Peter and of certain work that I would do that at that time didn't make any sense. And after reading The Red Goddess, I was like, that's who she was. And it's still unfolding what she said. So my encounter comes out of a, a direct experience. And so my interest is also in these kinds of uh direct embodied experiences of the divine. Uh, that's why my work is um, in dance and embodied practice, because I think that there is, and I'm so interested in, for example, the, the mystics of the 16th century, or, yeah, especially. And to establish this kind of contact that gets beyond oneself, it's not about Uh, emulating or impersonating or fulfilling some kind of idea or archetype of what this divine feminine is, but in having this sort of radical openness to keep going and seeking her and finding that and what she can become, because it's only by doing that things become, and it's only by doing that one transforms oneself to to see more, that one transforms one's consciousness or one's one's vision. So the work with Babylon for me has been very much about this um, 
reconnection with the, the mysteries of the body, this beginning to understand what it is that a body can do, mm-hmm. what it is that a body is capable of becoming through practice, through through this uh, both devotional work and, and directed uh, intentional magical practice, that we can transform our consciousnesses and our bodies and our relationship with the things around us. And Babylon is so much of what has been shut out of, of the Western tradition in so many ways. Um, I, like Peter, trace her back to Inanna, who is the first attested goddess. And so I've taken a, a lot of my practice has been built around that. So the, the connections and the research around Venus or around um as a major, as another um, astral configuration that's linked to Inanna Ishtar, and developing a practice where there is a sort of a timed and an astrological aspect, as well as a devotional aspect. Um, it's yeah, it's really it's like trying to dredge up something from the depths, as well as sort of building on this foundation something that can actually be. Uh, because it's very hard to have a practice where one doesn't already exist. And I think this is also one of the reasons people are drawn to uh, groups and cults and things that provide them everything already. And so I've spent years just sort of researching and, and doing stuff and through my dances, exploring these subjects so that I could formulate a practice out of nothing <laughs> yeah, and, and yeah. something that was relevant directly to me. It had to have a, a, like the, 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 like ritual and my dancers, they have to have an impact on my life. They can't just be something that's make believe that uh, reinforces my sense of myself as something, you know, special because I'm not just a person, but it's so important that it's, is relevant to who I am and to my history and to my um, background and to my being in the world as I am and being effective. So it's really trying to make something that is <sighs> truthful, but this takes time. So it's very much in process. <laughs> Isn't it the hardest thing for a person to get rid of the want and need to be loved. And that's why it's so hard to, to find your own path. Yes. I think, I don't know what, I mean, I've always, uh, I've I've inevitably been on my own path because of life circumstances and also my character is very, very, uh, yeah, that that can can help with, uh, yeah, help, 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 maybe the wrong word, but it makes it, it makes it faster. Maybe. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But I've been lucky. I've had, I've, I've encountered some very, apart from Peter, like before I met Peter, I had interesting encounters with uh, magical, curious people who gave me what I needed at the time I had those encounters, you know, and it's usually what you need to hear is, uh, something like the truth. And there's not a lot of that going around. There's a lot of cruelty and there's a lot of like politics, but there's not a lot of truth telling going around. So I had some people who were able to give me good advice, um, physical things like when I was doing Qigong, who could tell me how I could do make corrections to what I was doing and, um, sort out my energy um, and the way it was working and I met people who said to me when I was 
deceiving myself that that's what I was doing and so on. So I had those, uh, you know, little slaps to wake up and to, to, to encounter people who can see straight through all your masks and just see who you are and tell you without any judgment, without any cruelty, but just to say, to say it, to, to encounter these kind of people is, I think I've been very lucky. Right, right. Yeah. Peter, why did you write Red Goddess in the first place? Because you did that also before you met, before yeah. you met, actually. Um, the Red Goddess was a, was a, a, a kind of crazy experience because the, the text, the text disguises what was uh, a seven year period of ritual um, that at one stage I was thinking about including within the text, but um, eventually I decided it wasn't the appropriate, um, it wasn't appropriate or necessary to include it because the work was so personal. So um, I'd had this kind of like, I'd had a series of like dramatic encounters with this presence, like mm -hmm. both in dream, both in my waking life, um, in my, in my erotic adventures, in my, um, in my exploration, my sexuality, in my ordeal practice, in my, um, reading and within the, the drenched iconography of the entire of the, the Western tradition. I mean, it's impossible to, it's impossible to live in this culture without recognizing the effect that a text such as revelation has had upon us and has had upon the culture. I mean, we're, we're, we're all the survivors of this piece of Christian eschatology. And it's, yeah. a, it's a fundamentally fascinating text. Um, and it's one that's, that's widely misunderstood because people, um, people don't have the context within which John wrote. So what I do always with my work is I try to start with no, no fixed ideas. Even if I have inspirations, if I have contacts, I always go back to the primary sources, I always go back to the point of origin. So, you know, so I've been to the, you know, we've been to the cave of revelation where, where John lay down and, and, mm -hmm. and the images came to him. We've been to Rome and the seven Hills. I mean, we've, you know, we've been to the Ishtar gate. We know we've, we've stood in these places. We've, we've, we've witnessed these events that have occurred through time and have occurred through our bodies and through our culture. And so the red goddess was a, was a book that came that that was written at a time when I was working um, I was working in media so the the book is deliberately a piece of new writing so it's quite different to a lot of my other writing in that it's designed to be read by anybody it's designed to be read by an absolute beginner and right. it's designed to push people's buttons it's written in a uh, in an almost an almost gonzo style I it mean my you know it's like <laughs> You know, it's you know it's it's the influence that I've had from like you know the various beat writers as well. I mean, it's a very it's a very direct, personal, impassioned text that came out of a, a you know an impassioned, crazy part of my life. And the the correspondence I get from people who 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 read the book is just huge. I mean, the number of the number of women 
queer men, uh, trans people who, who, who get this. And this book answers questions deeply to themselves about who they are, about their eroticism, about the, mm. the, the, act, the, the parts of them that have been repressed in the, in the culture that they live in. Um, it's been phenomenal. I mean, it's mm. still, it's still like, our, it's still our best-selling book. Um, but, mm. but it's a book which was written at a particular time in a particular style. I mean, I'm a much more, I'm a much more exacting, nuanced thinker and writer now. So if you want to actually understand what my positions are, then, then you, you need to, you need to read Brazen Vessel. You'd need to right. look at, uh, uh, you know, my much more academic work as in like, as in Lucifer Princeps, mm. um, but that book is that book is a magical weapon, um, and that book continues to destroy people's lives, um, burn their crap relationships to the ground, um, cause car crashes, love affairs, um, fist fights. I mean, that's what that's what the energy is in the world. It it's, it's a wild thing mm-hmm. designed to bring her present, make her present, and and right. and you know. I, I hope, I hope that it's managed to do do a little of that. Oh, I'm, I'm, I would be positive it has. Well, um, that was a great hour in your company. We could go on forever. I had to had the feeling it's, but we should just do that some other, some other point and, to, we'll and to point. exactly. <laughs> no, but this was great. Well, thank you for also for your openness and for all the all the like in your books. You you when you when we when one speaks to you, it's very open and uh, very direct so i really like that so thank you for that thank you for teaching me and our audience a lot of things and um i hope we can repeat that at some other point good luck with all your ventures with those four books and your own writings and plans whatever you have and well let's hope to be back here uh, at some other time thank you it was thank wonderful you. it was yeah, a pleasure it's been brilliant thank you bye now bye
Fire Spell from the 1973 album Guitar Grimoire by Master Wilburn Burchett. Wilburn was a largely self-taught guitarist and self-taught mystic whose fascination with the occult began around the age of 12. He calls his music impro, seeking to play not music but emotions, hearkening back to a pre-verbal age. And I hope you liked this. Just as I hope you liked my talk with Alkisis Dimek and Peter Gray. And please do me a favor. Do go to the website of Scarlet Imprint. See what they produce. It is really worth it. Very exciting books, which are also lovely to just hold in hands and touch, but of course, a very exciting read and very exciting to work with. Thanks, Alkistis. Thanks, Peter, for all you do. Okay, friends and listeners, another show comes to its end. But of course, you're all curious now about who will be our guest in next week's episode. Sure, I will tell you. There will be now a few returners to this show, meaning that some of the guests we will have over the next couple of months, some of them, have already appeared on the Thought Hermes podcast earlier. And this is because they have released wonderful new works, which we really need to talk about. The first to come is Angel Millar. He was with us in November 2017, so more than two years back. And in our next show, we will mainly, but not exclusively, talk about his new book, The Three Stages of Initiatic Spirituality which will appear actually only four days before the release of that new episode number seven with Angel. So you see, your Thoth Hermes podcast is really hot on the spot. But for today, we will now to have to say goodbye. It was wonderful to have you as an audience. Do comment, do communicate, and do become a patron. For now, I can only say, take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.